It's time for the PowerMizzou.com podcast with interviews and analysis of your Missouri Tigers. Now, here's your host, Gabe DeArmond. Welcome back to another week of the PowerMizzou.com podcast as we slowly trudge toward the end of Missouri football season and eagerly anticipate maybe the beginning of Missouri basketball. It's a uh, fine time here in Columbia, Missouri, so... We are going to go ahead and preview this week's game. We're going to talk to Chris Lee of VandySports.com. He covers Vanderbilt for the Rivals.com network. And, Chris, it's been a long time, I bet, since you had an intro that enthusiastic. <laughs> let's just say you're, you're having me on, not just because it's Missouri's opponent, because, let's face it, if you want an expert on the slow trudge, then you come to me, Dave. <laughs> I just want somebody else to have to talk about this for a while. Um, <laughs> I feel your pain, man. You know, uh, uh, all right, let's start with, with big picture at Vandy. Um, and, and I think this is actually somewhat of a potential uh, lesson in a little bit of patience for Missouri fans because I hear from the lunatic fringe that once Barry Odom fired nine games into his career every day. Um, there was a time this year where we thought Vanderbilt was probably going to be looking for a new head coach. It, it doesn't necessarily look that way anymore. Yeah, I mean, that, that time was really right up until the point that Zach Cunningham made one of the plays of the year in college football. And everybody's probably seen the, the, the jump over the line of scrimmage and block the field goal. But he made one that was less spectacular, but actually probably more meaningful in the Georgia game where he stops Isaiah McKenzie on a fourth and one. But, yeah, Vanderbilt comes up with that win because the narrative is then, look, they're probably going to win, you know, three games, four games, something like that, and three straight sub-500 seasons is unacceptable, even at Vanderbilt. At least it is now. didn't used to be. And, yeah, I mean, I, I thought I was going to be covering a coaching search a few weeks ago, but since then they played pretty well, and that included a, a game at Auburn where I thought they would get their doors blown off, and instead they really had a chance until the final minute of the game. And, and honest to God, if you if you go back and they don't take a fumble call off the board that probably should have been taken off the board, uh, you know, could have been watching an overtime game at Auburn, which nobody expected. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes it, it turns around and sometimes it clicks kind of when nobody's watching. And, and for Missouri, kind of watching that situation from afar and having some sympathy for that fan base based on <laughs> what I've seen with the fan base of the team I've covered. There's there's your optimistic outlook, I guess we can say. Well, we, uh, we need one of those. Now, it, it just real quick, I mean, it, Vandy – Look, they're four and four. Uh, you know, bowl game probably still kind of tough. Although neither Tennessee nor Ole Miss, who they have the last two weeks, looks like world beaters. But I, I mean, I'm looking at the schedule. I think if Missouri fans had had Vandy's season, they'd be perfectly happy because while they're four and four, thirteen ten to South Carolina, thirteen. Uh, I'm sorry, four and five, thirteen six to Florida, twenty to thirteen to Kentucky, and twenty three sixteen to Auburn. I mean. They're four and five, but this is a very competitive football team. Yeah, no, they're bad on offense, and they were ranked, you know, what, 128 of 128 going into the Tennessee State game. They rang up 510 yards or 501 yards of offense. I mean, I guess Missouri fans know a little bit about ringing up big totals against FB or FCS teams. But, you know, look, yeah, it's been a competitive season. It's kind of what I said before the season. You looked at the schedule, and there weren't a lot of games against world beaters on there. 
and you figure they were going to be competitive. You didn't think they were going to win them all, but it's, it's played out other than the Georgia Tech game where they were bad. I mean, they were about as mm-hmm. bad as I've seen in the SEC team look. That was week three, and we all thought, okay, this is where the season's going. That's really when the get rid of the coach start talk started. But since then, it's, yeah, I mean, they've been, they haven't won them all, but they've at least been in every game other than that one. All right, now explain to me, because I don't have any idea. Now, I I fully say this. I haven't gambled on a college football game in 20 years. It's not my thing. But I at least know what the lines are, and I know how they set them and why they set them that way. I don't understand, A, why Missouri was favored to start this week, and B, why they're actually favored by more now. Didn't we sort of have a conversation like this last year where it was like the over-under was like 40? Yeah, <laughs> on, that, on that epic game I mean, in Nashville, you... like how how are they going to get the? Yeah, I mean, I don't think this is that pronounced. I think it's this simple. Like Vegas sets lines based on perception, and honestly, guy, when you think of good football teams the last decade, you know, for Vanderbilt, that little little run James Franklin had comes to mind. But honestly, you know, Missouri's just a couple years removed from back to back SEC title. That maybe it's the case where the public really doesn't perceive that Missouri is as bad as it's been. And look, Gabe, I've watched a couple of their games, most of them. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I watched them. I, I can't believe that they're not better than they've been. But I think that's really what it is. It's Vegas is about trying to set the line to get even money on both sides. And uh, I think perception is Missouri is a better program. And, it, of course, it's well-deserved. I, I, we're going to get to the program talk in a minute because I, I don't have a lot about this game and matchups, whatever. It's, it's going to be what it's going to be. But I do want to ask you one. You mentioned Zach Cunningham earlier. I mean, it, it, everybody knows this this kid's good. Is he like SEC Defensive Player of the Year good? I do an SEC podcast and a blog where I am probably doing, I don't know, 12 to 15 hours of research in addition to watching games every week. And you know, I can't see everybody play. It's hard to say. I look at stat sheets. I mean, my, my conclusion has been that Jonathan Allen at Alabama has probably yeah, been the front runner all year. Well, and, and, and here's the thing that I look at. It's not just stats, but, like, and, and this is where it's hard to separate because Jonathan Allen's got Reuben Foster and Minka Fitzpatrick and all kinds of guys around him. So it kind of becomes hard to separate, okay, is he greater because of the cast around him or are they greater because of the cast around him or are they all just that good? Uh, but, you know, he, he's a guy that's getting double teams out and make plays. That Cunningham plays in a 3-4 where you've got guys in front of him designed to shed blockers. But having said that, you know, I've listened to the guys at great games. I mean, I see what he does and the amazing plays he makes, but they talk about his instincts and how, you know, he'll go a whole game and only make, like, one bad read. And, you know, the thing about him is he gets – sideline to sideline, and it's like whenever the play is made, he's in the picture. If he's not the guy with his mitts on the on the ball carrier, it is incredible. I'm, I'm trying to think of a guy he reminds me of, and I'm not getting an obvious comparison, but if you remember Ray Lewis what, back in his heyday what with about the, the Ravens? To tie it into Missouri, what about a comparison to Kentrell Brothers from last well, year? Well, as soon as you said Missouri, that's, that's one that came to mind, although Brothers, I, I don't think he was drafted that high. Fifth uh, round, yeah. Yeah, Cunningham right now is looking on the NFL draft scout. He's a 13th overall rated player in next year's draft. He's a junior. That's presuming he'll come out, which he will. But I'm just trying to think in terms of style. He and Lewis were different because Lewis was a shorter, squattier guy who maybe hits you with more of a punch. Cunningham is kind of a guy who gets there, and he's long, and he's lean, and he doesn't really pound you as much as he just puts you in the turf. 
But in terms of just activity and the guys that were, yeah, I mean, brothers, Ray Lewis, I think they were different body types, all three of them. But if you, if you want a visual of a guy that's just always in the play, it's him. But, I mean, back to your original question, I think defensive player of the year in my mind. I mean, Miles Garrett could have been in there had he stayed healthier. Jalen Tabor at Florida, obviously, he's a shutdown corner. But, you know, who have they played and who have they beaten? I, to me, it is between Jonathan Allen of Alabama Derek Barnett at Tennessee and Zach Cunningham at Vandy. I mean, and, and this is a lead game. I was looking through mock drafts, I guess, last week, and it was, you know, looking CBS, some places like that. There were 14 defensive players in the SEC that were getting first-round mention in somebody's mock draft. That is just incredible. Wow. That tells you what um, – and that, that's not even including guys that are underclassmen. And there's plenty of good ones in this league that, that aren't going to be draft eligible next year. But it is it's just that kind of year for defense in the SEC. But even with that, I think he deserves to be very much at the forefront of that conversation. All right, we're talking to Chris Lee, VandySports.com. And, Chris, I want to spend our, our next last five to ten minutes here talking about program stuff. And, uh, you know, look, I'm not, not breaking any news here to you, and, and I don't mean this to sound as insulting as I know it's going to sound, but – Missouri fans right now are sitting here saying we don't want to become the Vandy of the SEC, the team that that frankly can't compete. Now, you know, I I look at it's harder to compete at Vandy than it is most places in the SEC. It's harder to compete at Missouri than it is most places in the SEC, but it's not impossible at either one. And and Gary Pinkle certainly proved that. James Franklin proved that. Why has Vandy... Let's go. I mean, look, I don't care about 1940, but the last, you know, 20, 30 years, why have they had so much trouble? No, I mean, in the comparison, you know, what you said is completely fair. You look at the record books, they went to a bowl in 1982, and then they didn't go to another bowl or have a winning season again until 2008. So, yeah, they, I mean, they basically have written the blueprint for SEC futility. I mean, for them, I guess here's where, if you're a Missouri fan, I, w- I would give you some hope. I think in the right team these days, I mean, look, you've seen Baylor has jumped up and become a perennial top 25 team. Missouri did it its own way. I mean, for Vanderbilt, I think it's a little bit easier now. The academic restrictions are there. I don't think they're quite as tough as, as everybody thinks. You know, they still can't get in a lot of kids that other SEC teams can. But, I mean, you look at Nashville, Gabe, you've been. It is maybe the hottest city in the country. You know, we've got two pro sports teams. You've got alums from all 14 of the schools with the, with the decent presence here. It's, it's a place where everybody wants to be. It's a top 15 or 20 school academically. It's in the SEC, which is the hottest football conference around. I mean, in a way, they have sort of benefited from what is a little bit of a perfect storm around them. Yeah. Now, it- Gary Pinkle said when they joined this league, hey, you better always be building something or you're behind. I know there has been some some drama at Vandy uh, around that in the last couple of years. Uh, can you just kind of fill, uh, fill Missouri fans in on that? Yeah, well, I've done a couple of podcasts on our site, and, and I've seen the numbers. It just goes to show that people love, I guess, complaining and bad news more than they love anything because those drew you know, you know, five, six times the audience that the, the ones I've done talk about the game straw, but yeah, I mean, the deal is, this is a school that's, that's behind on its commitment to football. They have talked several times about needing to build a stadium or renovate the stadium, and they keep walking back on it. The latest thing was a couple of months ago, the athletic director, who is, I think, 68 years old and makes little to no effort to raise money, came out of the paper and said, 
we want to either build a new stadium or get some renovations. And for the first time for in forever, we're actually serious about this, which was completely contradictory on everything he'd ever said before, which was that, you know, he said a few years ago they were serious about it then. So that got people asking questions. The local paper called the chancellor, who cannot be bothered to comment on the record, issued a statement through his spokesperson that said any talk of a stadium rebuild or anything like that is premature. Our focus here is on academics, which, of course, that got the fans fired up because you got the AD and the president publicly contradicting themselves in the paper. And then the next week at a fan event, the athletic director, I guess he got called in and uh, was told to get on the same page. He just said all of a sudden, well, no, there's there's no stadium stuff going on. There's no talk of it. Um, it's all premature. There's not a demand for it. The fans won't pay for it. Now everybody just shut up and go home. So it, it has been a crazy ride for fans. And, of course, this came at the time before the Georgia upset where people were really despondent about football. So I think the thing is now people are kind of waiting to see, do they ever do something with a stadium that needs it? Now, they did build an indoor practice facility uh, three or four years ago, which cost them $31 million and is a really nice building. But since then, their commitment to football on the financial facilities in is has really not been what it needs to be if you're going to be an SEC school. So do you see that changing, or is this just kind of a, hey, we're happy being good at baseball and, and kind of the academic guys in, in the SEC? You know, I was told back when they had a coaching search, you know, they finally got rid of Kevin Stallings after 17 years, and I think it was past time. I mean, he did some good things, but I think they can do better. This is a school that has, has had some basketball success. It's got an iconic facility, and it's got a fan base that shows up for things. And I was told at the time that by somebody who was connected that they were thinking that they could do more things along the lines of, okay, we can win in baseball and in basketball and in, in golf and tennis and things like that, which, you know, they won a national title in baseball a couple of years ago. They've been pretty competitive in basketball. I think they can be better. And they got in a bidding war with Georgia Tech over Bryce Drew, which they won. I think they gave Bryce Drew. It's, it's private because they're not a public university. But I think the contract was four years and $2.6 million per year. So they, they kind of started to put their money where their mouth was. You know, Tim Corbin gets paid pretty well. They've done some baseball facility things. Yeah, I mean, I think they're committed to those other sports, but football is the one. And here's your context, Gabe. This all goes back to the Brandon Vandenberg rape trial, which I guess the whole incident happened in summer of 2013, which eventually was one of the things that led to James Franklin leaving the Penn State. It's, you know, that got them in the papers. Vandenberg just got sentenced this week. But you know, every time that went to papers, that was an embarrassment to the school. And I mean, I don't have to tell you, the academic world is a different one. You've lived it in Columbia, you've seen the protests, you've seen all the turmoil around that campus, but at a place that's basically an Ivy League school, you can magnify that a little bit more. you got people on that campus who are openly hostile to football, don't want a football team at all, don't want them to commit to a football team. I think that's put pressure on the president, which has put pressure on the AD. I think they feel that they can win and those other sports, and they have one of those other sports, and I think you might see them make a greater commitment to those other sports. Uh, but football, I, I just think right now, they're almost content to just kind of mail it in unless somebody, which I guess the only point is somebody, the only somebody would be either some boosters getting so angry they force change or the SEC doing something. But I think really what they need is a new AD. David Williams is, is pushing 70. He's not energetic. He's had health issues. He does not raise money. The chancellor is a complete bandwagon guy. If they're doing well, he's out in front of people. If they disappear, 
and they don't do well, he disappears. He's not available to the media. So I, I think it is a, a school right now that seems like it's committed to those other sports, but football, they're certainly not willing to make a public commitment to it, and they certainly don't have an AD who is going to fight and change the culture and raise the money for the things that they need. All right, last thing, because there is a game this weekend. we got a couple minutes. Uh, I, there is. Not a, don't need a prediction, but, I mean, what do you kind of see? Uh, what kind of game do you see, and, and what's Vanderbilt got to do to win? I think this is a game where I've seen Missouri's run defense. They have a hard time stopping it. The question I have is how good is Vanderbilt going to be in it? They've gotten a little more creative in the run game. They've done some wildcat things, and some in rounds. That's helped them a little bit, Kyle Shermer was a lot better in the passing game a week ago when they made some short move the chains throws and it really moved the ball better against Auburn than they had against anybody other than Tennessee State all year. I think Vanderbilt would like to line up and just run it down Missouri's throat. My question I have is Ralph Webb has been playing with a really heavily taped left ankle for a while. I don't know how well he is. If you told me Ralph Webb is close to 100%, I say they probably win that game because they are able to do what Missouri can't really stop. I would say on defense, they forced some turnovers. And on offense, they almost never turn it over. So the thing that Missouri's been bad at is, is giving the ball away. I think they've got the potential to, to to really exploit that on that side and to run the ball. But I think if Webb is not completely healthy, which he's probably not going to be, and if he's not effective, I, this might be a little bit closer game than people think. I, I know that sounds crazy. Missouri is their favorite, and I think we're all thinking Vanderbilt wins the game. But I, I don't know that it's going to be. I, I think it'd actually be interesting if you just watch it from a football standpoint. You know, forget that Missouri's had a bad year. You know, forget that Vanderbilt's a four and five team. I, I think it's going to be an interesting matchup. I think that's what Vanderbilt's going to want to do. But I'm watching the Ralph Webb injury to see how that goes. I, I think Vanderbilt wins, but look, this is a team that, that hadn't really blown anybody away all year. Yeah, well, hey, interesting would be a step forward from last year for these two teams. So uh, <laughs> I'll root for that. Last game was, was one of, awful. I mean, you just wanted to poke your eyes out. Yeah, it was awful. It, it, it was yeah. a, a, in a terrible season to watch for Missouri. That might have been the worst one. So uh, I, I'm going to try to find a way to pump this one up as, as exciting. Uh, so there you go. It's going to be an interesting game from Chris Lee. Appreciate it, man. That's why I'm here. All right, buddy. Have a good one. You too. See you. Okay, we'll turn our attention now. Uh, we'll still talk some Missouri, but also a little bit of the rest of the SEC. Talking to Cole Kubelik of the SEC Network, and Cole has seen Missouri the last two weeks. Cole, uh, appreciate you taking some time today, man. Hey, absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's start uh, in in Columbia. You've seen this team up close the last uh, last couple weeks, and I guess. Last week, an improvement over the one before, but still obviously a, a team uh, with, with a lot of struggles. Sometimes when you're, you're following it every day, it's tough to analyze exactly what's gone wrong. So the 30,000-foot view of someone who maybe hasn't seen this program every day, I mean, what did you see out of this team, and where, are things, where have things gone wrong for Missouri this season? I think more than anything, it's a lack of consistency. If you're going to be a team that wants to run 100-plus plays a game, and your your quarterback, your trigger man is the one that's going to have to make that happen. He better be hitting at a pretty high clip, especially on on the easy intermediate throws, the throws that the defense is giving you. If not, you're going to find yourself just in bad situations. And I don't think Missouri has the talent, experience, or leadership right now to continuously dig themselves out of bad situations, be it second, third, longs. 
the run game has been a little bit inconsistent. You see him rotate quarterbacks to try to bring different run dynamic to the offense. But ultimately, it's got to be Drew Locke hitting at a very high rate on intermediate, easy throw throws that the defense is giving him defensively. The change in scheme is obviously making a difference. They're not built for what the new scheme uh, asked them to be. And I think also injuries have taken a huge toll on that side of the ball with losing a big play defensive lineman and losing really the ultimate leader in Michael Shearer at linebacker. So mm-hmm. you're trying to fill in guys. You're trying to ask guys to play out of position. Uh, you got a linebacker in there last week that's literally practiced two or three days at that position <laughs> the entire year, and you're asking him to go out there and, and be a, a regular linebacker against an SEC offense. It's just it's asking a lot. Yeah. One of the the storylines that's been big here the last week or so, and I've talked a lot about it myself, is, you know, this idea that, hey, Drew Locke's just a sophomore. He's a young quarterback. Uh, This is going to be his 18th start coming up. When when do we not use youth and inexperience as an excuse for a quarterback? Or or is that still fair for Drew? I think it is fair for him. And speaking to Josh Heupel about him, he talked about how he was recruited. Um, as a basketball player out of high school, talked about how that he was a young man in high school that when football season was over, you know, the, the football and the cleats and the helmet were kind of pushed to the side. And it, it was all basketball for the majority of the offseason. And talked about how this year felt more like he was taking on a true freshman quarterback and his experience level and how he approached the game, things of that nature, That that's kind of what he reminded him of. So, it's, it's, I think you you sort of hit the reset button with a kid of his maybe general football experience coming in and being thrown a new offensive coordinator in a different system. Maybe not, maybe not a, a totally new system, but a different system just in how they do some things. So uh, I, think, I think he does deserve some more time, and I think he's a kid that has shown he's got the talent, he can make throws. It's just, just going to be consistency, and with that comes reps. And it comes comfort and it comes experience. So I think all those things are going to take some time, but I wouldn't hit the panic button on, on Drew Locke just yet and say that because he's been around a certain amount of time that he should automatically be comfortable and be driving in this system. All right. Now over on the other side of the ball, I mean, we mentioned, we've talked all year here about the the scheme change and all that. They're back to, to what they were doing last year. It still hasn't and the injuries at this point maybe have decimated the defense to the point where we can't take a whole lot out of it. But I want to ask you, because obviously you're you're familiar with, with NFL football and everything as well. Charles Harris has been the guy here coming into the year, first-round draft pick. It's been a, He's basically had two games this year. What do you think of the year Harris has had, and is he is still a guy that, that you think is, is a pretty high pick in the NFL draft? I do. I like his I like his measurables, and, and I think number one, he's overshadowed by some of the other edge players in this league. Tim Williams at Alabama gets a lot of publicity. Miles Garrett gets a ton. Arden Key gets a lot. Carl Lawson at Auburn gets a lot. All those guys deserve it, and I don't want to take anything away from them. Mm-hmm. But they're high profile guys on on teams that are having better seasons. And even though edge guys have sort of become the new quarterback of the defense as far as the publicity that they get and the chatter that they, that they get and most deserve. Uh, I think when you have a team that's not having a great year, it's easy to get lost on that side of the football. I think he's had a pretty good year. When, when I watch his film, uh, I see him taking on blocks. He plays much better in the run game than I anticipated going in 
a couple weeks ago before the Kentucky game when I really began to study him more than I had previously, I didn't think he'd be a guy that was real good against the run. He, he takes on blocks very well. He understands how to shed blocks. He understands how to play flat down the line of scrimmage. And I don't know if because of where Missouri has been as a team this year and not being in a lot of close games, not being in situations where teams have had to throw the ball a lot against you. I mean, let's take the Kentucky game and the South Carolina game. I mean, a lot of what Carolina did was play action. They picked their spots. But that was a run-heavy performance. Kentucky obviously was a run-heavy performance. They haven't had a whole lot of opportunities for multiple drives, either late in games or late in the second half, to be able to line up on the other side of an offensive tackle and just tee off and attack and utilize that elite speed rusher ability to go after opposing quarterbacks. So I think that's one thing right there that a lot of folks don't really take into consideration, that the opportunities for Charles Harris maybe haven't been there like a lot of us expected to be, and they have been for some of those other guys that I mentioned. Therefore, they're going to get much more publicity, much more credit. He'll still be taken fairly early. I think he's going to make a good pro. All right, now, when you guys come in and do these games, I know you, you spend some time with the coaching staff, get get access that, that most people obviously don't have. Just what's what's been your general impression after talking to Missouri's coaches? I mean, look, I, they're 2-7. and seven. I understand there's frustration. There's frustration in the fan base. But, you know, as far as the uh, – has this been tougher than they expected? Uh, do, do they feel like they're close? What, what was your impression? Much more positive than, than you might anticipate and do feel like they're close. Um, consistency was a big word with Heupel talking about the offense. And I think Coach Odom just, you know, he, he wants to do right for Missouri. And he wants, he wants to make the Missouri fan base happy. And he wants to make that program respectable. Um, but, but definitely positive. You, you look at some of the injuries that they've had. They hurt in a multitude of ways. It's, it's, they're not just being hurt by you know, guys that give you production. It's leadership. It's experience. And those things are very difficult to replace. So, uh, I think that a lot of different changes, a lot of youth in certain areas, uh, the experience they lost on the offensive line, the injuries that they've had to key leadership positions this year, I think they understand sort of what they're up against. But um, I, I would expect this thing to not maybe get turned around this year. I, I don't think they're very far away next year with what's going to be returning to be able to put a good product back on the field. All right, now you got Kentucky and Tennessee this week, and uh, both still alive and still in decent position for the East. Uh, I've actually seen one thing where it says there could be a six-way tie at four and four, which would send South Carolina to Atlanta. So I'm going to ask this the nicest possible way I can. How bad has the SEC East been this year? It's, yeah, it's not great. And I think it starts at that position that we just mentioned, the quarterback. Um, and just you look at the fact that now Florida's talking about pulling red shirts off kids. South Carolina's already pulled red shirt off a kid. Um, you know, Vanderbilt had pretty good quarterback play last week against Auburn, but it, that's the first time that Kyle Shermer's looked that good the entire season. Missouri, obviously, quarterback play has been inconsistent. Josh Dobbs has not lived up to the hype and been the guy that we thought he would be, which I've always thought of him more as a runner anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, injuries have, have decimated that side of the, of the conference and in that division, but still, it's just uh, I think you have maybe an entire side of a division that just the expectations internally are not where they need to be. And there's been some false buildup around how strong the conference is and maybe some players and coaches and programs leaning on, well, we're good because we're in the SEC and not really gone out and proving it. It's one of the reasons that I didn't have that high of an expectation of Tennessee coming into the year because people flipped out about, 
the winning streak towards the end of last year, but you put the teams on paper that they beat, and you had to kind of scratch your head and say, how impressive is this really? And mm-hmm. to me, it, it just wasn't. So there are a lot of things that play into it. I don't think it's just that there's a lot of bad coaches and players, uh, but I do think that some of the expectations need to be tempered. You've seen, obviously, uh, most if not all of these teams in person. I mean, it, however the schedule breaks down, I'm not sure. But if you just had to say this is the best team in this division, who do you think it is? Well, it's tough right now. Um, I would say a toss-up between Kentucky and South Carolina. Wow. Um, I think Kentucky is a little bit more talented, but they are, are overcoming more at the quarterback position. Um, I, I think South Carolina may be playing a little bit better team defense. And even though they have a user quarterback, they have a guy that brings balance to their offense right now. And those are the only two teams I think are playing with a lot of confidence. I can't really judge Tennessee based on what they did against Tennessee Tech last week. That's not a fair litmus test or gauge for what that team really is. So I think right now with the way that they're playing and what happened to Florida last weekend, I've been high on Florida all season. I picked them to win the East. Um, I still stuck by them a couple weeks ago saying that I still thought they'd be able to do it. Um, but they're going to be out. Cam Dillard at center, Anzalone and Davis are both going to be out. You know, they're they're beat up in the at quarterback. Del Rio's out. I, I don't know, I don't know where your confidence level really could be with Florida right now. Mm-hmm. All right, last last thing for you over on the other side. Uh, you played at Auburn a couple weeks be- between them, Alabama, and the Iron Bowl, which is uh, once again, I guess, the SEC game of the year. Um, is is anybody? In that division or in this league or, frankly, in college football, you know, on the right day, good enough to beat Bama? It's all matchups, honestly. I think Auburn, if healthy, if Cam Petway's healthy and Sean White's healthy and Carrion Johnson's there to help out a little bit and healthy, they provide some matchup problems for Alabama. You're going to have to attack that team down the field. They're not going to give you things in the run game. You have to earn things in the run game, which was a pretty good offensive line and a physical north-south back. I think Auburn has a chance to do a little bit of it. They did it last year with Javon Robinson. Had a pretty good day on the ground uh, when all things were said and done. They just couldn't do anything through the air. Mm-hmm. A healthy Sean White can help them do that. He's been real accurate down the field through the air this year. And even though they, they lack a, a game-breaking wide receiver, they got some kids who stepped up and played well. So I think Auburn, with pace and tempo and what understanding Sean White now has of the offense, can be problematic. Uh, it's not going to be Mississippi State this week, even though Nick Fitzgerald is coming off three consecutive 100-yard rushing games. He doesn't have enough up front. That offensive line is just not good enough. I don't think they can hold up against Alabama. And if you're talking postseason, I think a team like Washington could be problematic. Uh, with, with the way Jake Browning spreads the football around, uh, multiple receivers having touchdown catches, and they can still play ground and pound and run the football, averaging almost six yards per carry on the season. Uh, they're balanced enough to be able to cause some problems, and I like their coaching staff. So, uh, and, they're, and they're physical enough on defense. I think, I think you need a, you're going to need a quarterback, a balanced offense with a quarterback that can hurt you down the field uh, because that's what they're going to give you. And then I think you have to have a defensive line that can cause problems because Alabama's offense has looked good, but they're not great, and they're a little bit one-dimensional. And if your D-line can cause problems, I think that allows you to free up some guys on the back end and maybe maybe roll the dice a little bit, take some chances to get some big plays on defense. And it it kind of worked a little bit for LSU. They just they just couldn't find any way to move the football. You've seen a lot more SEC football than I have, but in this day and age where it's all about flinging the ball around and scoring points, is this Alabama defense as impressive as any you've seen 
they're they're good. <laughs> they have a, they have more dudes than anybody else does. That when I watch them, I think to myself, "Man, I'm not sure I want to play against that guy." <laughs> um, and they they have. I tell you what makes this group even more dangerous is the amount of different guys they have that can do different things. I mean, last year they had a, they had a couple of dudes that could really hunker down. They had some thumper linebackers. They had two guys on the edge that could that could set the edge and, and you know force things back in or spill runs outside. And this year they just, you know, it's, if it's a speed guy off the edge, if it's a guy, if it's a bigger, a bigger defensive tackle that can roll out and play defensive end, if it's a lighter defensive tackle that can rush from the interior, linebackers that can either slither through an offensive lineman or play sideline to sideline. They just, they seem to have more weapons on that side of the ball this year that offer more versatility. All right, well, Cole, enjoy Knoxville this weekend and uh, appreciate you taking some time on uh, on the way there. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, have a good one. Cole Kublik, SEC Network. Uh, we'll be on the call for uh, Tennessee-Kentucky this weekend. Had Missouri against Kentucky and against South Carolina. Missouri lives on the SEC Network, but that's why I wanted to have Cole on and, and listen, a guy that uh, he played at Auburn. He knows a lot of football, obviously watches a lot of film. Uh, he's been the, the sideline guy in those games, but uh, spent some time around Missouri's coach and coaches and, and players and all that, so I wanted to give you kind of an outside perspective because, like I said, when when you're there every day, sometimes you miss the the big picture. Um, you know, sometimes it's a little tougher to analyze from that level. So I uh, wanted to have Cole on here to talk uh, talk kind of the conference-wide view of Missouri and then give you some thoughts on, on the rest of the league. And thanks also to Chris Lee, VandySports.com. Missouri, Vandy, 2.30 Saturday afternoon at Farrell Field. We'll be there. Missouri, Alabama, A&M basketball, 7 o'clock Sunday night. We'll be there. And uh, – Double duty for the next two, three weeks. So uh, thanks for listening. We will be back on the podcast next week. Uh, before we head to Knoxville, previewing at that point, Missouri, Tennessee, and uh, who knows, still a wide open SEC East race in which every team except Mizzou could uh, tie for the title. So it's a mess. Not a lot of reason to pay attention to it in Columbia, but hey, we got to pay attention to something. So thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back again next week.